Great, thanks, Devin. Um, and, and thank you everyone uh, for joining us this afternoon. Um, we're really excited to uh, uh, present this to you. Um, so the, the first panel here will be focused on the current state of really securities regulation of digital assets in the US, um, how the SEC's approach to digital assets might change under the current, uh, under the current chair and what funds and investment advisors need to consider when investing in these types of products. Um, so I will um, allow the, uh, my, my name is Stephanie Capuchon, I'm a partner at uh, Deckert, um, and I am going to allow each of the panelists to introduce themselves, so I'll turn it over to uh, Professor Goforth to start. Um, hi everybody, I am Carol Goforth, I am a professor of law at the University of Arkansas School of Law in Fayetteville. I have been interested in and writing about crypto assets and their regulation for the past half dozen years. I've got my second edition of a, a student book, Regulation of Crypto Assets, coming out from West in May of this year. And I'm just delighted to be here with you this afternoon. I'm not sure who else, do I need to introduce somebody else? <laughs> Turn it over to, to Max. Thanks, Stephanie. Good afternoon, everyone. Max Riffin. I'm a corporate and securities partner at Prince LaBelle and Thai. Um, I represent a number of private investment funds, investment advisors, and companies, both in the crypto space and other verticals as well. Um, I think I started advising crypto trading exchanges and platforms maybe back in 2013 or, or 2014. Probably my first foray into crypto was representing a tech company and a JV, a joint venture, with I think the first EU Bitcoin exchange platform. Um, now I represent any number of various crypto market participants both onshore and offshore, sometimes it feels like we're all kind of flying by the seats of our pants here, which frankly is not always the most comfortable position as a lawyer, but it's exciting. It's tons of fun to be in the mix, um, especially in something so revolutionary in our lifetimes. It's not great for sleep, however, and yes, there are, there are many sleepless nights. Um, also worries the next day that maybe I missed the, uh, the latest earth-shaking development or at least regulations that at long last maybe offer us some greater clarity into this already challenging space. Hasn't happened yet, but I'm staying optimistic. Thanks, Stephanie. And, and Tim. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Tim Spangler. I'm a partner in the financial services group here at Deckard. I have been a, a financial services lawyer the, the length and breadth of my career. The first couple of decades, though, more focused around investment funds, investment products, uh, and the like. Um, I, I spent my first five years of my practice in New York, the next 12 in London, and the last several years here in California, which is really where I started breathing in the air of, of crypto several years ago, answering a number of, of, of quite minor pedantic questions about Bitcoin and Ether, you know, is Bitcoin covered by the code of ethics of an investment advisor? And from there, I, I fell down the rabbit hole and, and I think over the last several years really worked uh, with Stephanie and others here at the firm to build out our, our blockchain practice. It really has two discrete sides to it. Part of what we do is represent the large money managers and financial institutions in understanding crypto, what it actually is, how it operates, and understanding how their legal and regulatory obligations can be fulfilled while, while working in that space. And, and the other half, looking through the telescope the other way, uh, we represent a lot of crypto native firms uh, in understanding how what they do, what they want to do, 
uh, is impacted or driven or limited by financial regulation. So I think we have a, a solid foot in, in each camp and excited to be part of this panel today. Thank you all. Um, and I should note here, really, I mean, there are many, many regulations, I think, that are impacted um, when we're talking about uh, cryptocurrencies, broker-dealer, commodities, securities, tax, uh, anti-money laundering. Um, so we're only going to kind of touch the surface here in terms of the, the specifics. But kind of stepping back, I think it probably would be helpful um, if we talked just a little bit about kind of an introduction to, to digital assets just to kind of set the stage um, in order to understand the, the regulations that we'll discuss um, after that. So uh, Professor Goforth, maybe I can turn it over to you to, to provide a little bit of background. Sure, this is going to be an extremely high level, very general introduction given time limitations. But even so, the professor and me can't resist taking everybody back to 2008 where we are in a space with growing interest in technology. We've got a cyberpunk kind of community that is interested in libertarian thought, not fond of big government, certainly not fond of big banks, very suspicious of the degree of oversight and lack of privacy in the financial sphere. And that really set the stage for the development of the first crypto asset, Bitcoin, which was designed as a substitute for government-banked currency. And all Bitcoin is, in fact, all any digital asset is, is an alphanumeric sequence that is maintained solely digitally. It has no tangible existence whatsoever. It is just a string of numbers on your computer. And for those of you who are saying, whoa, how can a string of numbers on my computer be worth $40,000? Well, how can a piece of paper be worth $1 or $5 or $100? It has value because people say it has value. And the thing that made Bitcoin so revolutionary was not that it was a substitute for currency. We'd had those before. It was the underlying blockchain technology, which was a way of creating a network of computers that maintained a shared digital ledger of transactions in the digital asset. And so crypto assets are maintained by a digital ledger that groups transactions into time-stamped blocks, and then those are added to the chain of all prior transactions, creating a blockchain. Some of these blockchains involve blocks that are verified by miners who look at very distinct different algorithms and, and solve problems, and then new assets are created whenever a miner successfully solves the problem and says, this is the block to be added next. Some are pre-issued. XRP is a good example of a crypto asset that was created by Ripple and then all 100 billion tokens were issued. So they are not mined. They are then already in existence and are issued or sold by Ripple or the original founders that started out with those assets. One of the things that's really important to keep in mind is while the original crypto asset was a cryptocurrency and the early alternatives were also designed as substitutes for currency, right now we have so many different kinds of crypto assets out there. 
Utility tokens really can have any utility that you can think of. They can serve as membership, proof of identity, proof of ownership of an underlying interest. We even have things called non-fungible tokens that are to some extent are unique, that there's metadata embedded making each single one different. So it's not like $1 bill like every other dollar bill, one Bitcoin like every other Bitcoin. Each NFT is unique. You can have stable coins, coins that are pegged to real world value so that they have a stable pricing. You can even have central bank issued digital assets, CBDCs, and those too can be maintained on the blockchain. So these are incredibly diverse. And the thing that they have in common is that they have no tangible existence. They are just maintained on a digitally shared ledger. All right, that is very helpful. I guess I will ask you then the, the follow-up question that's really the starting point for this discussion, which is whether uh, digital assets are, are securities. What is, what is the current regulatory framework on this? Okay, the, the SEC um, originally seemed to take the position that every crypto asset was a security. Um, and then they articulated beginning in 2017 with something called the DAO report, uh, their conclusion that they were going to look at the very conventional Howey investment contract test, the test articulated back in 1946 by the U.S. Supreme Court. So long as a digital asset involves an investment of money or something of value in a common enterprise where you are expecting profits, from the essential entrepreneurial efforts of others, you are buying a security, you are buying an investment contract. And as that test began to unfold, there have been at least unofficial recognition that Bitcoin, yes, you buy Bitcoin with an investment of value, everybody's fortunes rise and fall together. We know people are hoping to make profits, but they're really not relying on the efforts of anybody in particular. They're relying on market forces. I mean, heck, we don't even know who the creator of Bitcoin was, much less how they would be influencing the price. So Bitcoin is so decentralized, so in the market to determine pricing that it probably is not an investment contract. And then maybe Ether is not. We've had a couple of, of folks from, from the SEC say Ether is not. Other than that, unless you have a kind of crypto asset that cannot be exchanged for currency, can't become something that you make a profit on. So it's you know, located solely on a gaming platform, like Pocketful of Quarters, or it is only usable to buy a particular asset or a particular service, and you can't make a profit on it that way, like the turnkey jet. Then other than that, we have the SEC essentially saying we're going to interpret how we broadly, we think it's broad enough to cover uh, most crypto assets. And to help us out, to simplify matters, they gave us in 2019 a framework that took the four-part Howey test and gave us 38 different considerations without telling us how to weigh them, how to evaluate them, how many were required, um, which I think is probably part of what keeps Max up at night. I mean, this is an incredibly challenging, difficult, demanding area. And um, these utility tokens, which I see a question coming up, 
just means any kind of crypto asset that is designed to have a function other than serving purely as a substitute for currency. Any kind of utility works. Um, the hopes were that those would not be securities, but the SEC has flat out said that that is not going to be determinative. And, and I, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, so I'll let somebody else speak now. Yeah, and maybe turn it over to, to Max to talk about you know, what this means in terms of engagement with, with different regulators and how market participants uh, think about this. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and look, I, I don't want to get into blaming the regulators too much. Um, as, as an 80s baby growing up in the big three era with Bird, McKell, and Parrish, um, DJ as well, um, it's like complaining to the refs. That, that doesn't get me anywhere when I'm advising a client. Um, but um, back when, when dinosaurs and, and ICOs were, were alive and, and roaming the earth, um, as, as the professor mentioned, um, back in 2017, there was the 2017 Dow report, and then there was Ether Delta, um, a consent order with, with the SEC. Um, Ether Delta was, was an online platform for secondary market trading of, of Ether and, and other tokens, and that kind of established, well, I guess it really continued a trend that we see today with the SEC, where many of the tokens traded on Ether Delta were launched during the 2017 ICO rush, um, initial coin offerings. But similar today, to today, the SEC really avoided identifying at the time which tokens on the exchange were securities and which were not. And so currently we have kind of a lack of guidance from regulators, um, market participants and, and practitioners like myself don't have a ton of clarity on registration under say the Securities Act, the Exchange Act, the Investment Company Act. Um, and then we have, we, we look at, at Kick and, and we look at Ripple where in neither case were, were investors defrauded, were they overtly deceived in, in any sort of way. Um, in fact, those, those cases um, and, and those instances really underscore the need for, for clear, more reasonable paths to regulatory compliance, especially when there's no fraud alleged. Um, yet in the case of Ripple, for example, the SEC waited, I don't know, I think seven years or so to bring an enforcement action um, after the company began selling its tokens. Um, by the way, I'm hoping that we, we have a chance to talk a little bit about BlockFi, which was a, a settlement or a consent order entered into about a month ago that I think has gone a little bit under the radar, or at least, um, you know, it, it, has, it hasn't garnered the attention that, that I've seen. And so BlockFi was, was a crypto lending platform where there's this SEC enforcement action and consent. Um, it was actually, I believe, it was the largest SEC settlement with, with a crypto company. Um, totaling about $100 million, and that was bifurcated in, in a number of ways. Plus, it will give us the opportunity maybe to talk about the Reeves test, um, get away from Howie, because I'm, I'm sure you all will be hearing about Howie a, a lot today. But, um, you know, in, in recent years, the SEC, and it's not the only regulator that's done this, to be fair, but they've engaged in what I kind of consider rulemaking by enforcement actions. And so they've increasingly utilized enforcement actions rather than formal rulemaking processes to achieve the desired policy outcomes. Um, regulation by enforcement, and from my perspective, is not overly helpful. Um, it, it doesn't give clarity to market participants, um, clients that I have, who otherwise you know, would generally willingly follow the rules of the road, but they can't because sometimes yellow means yield, other times it means stop. 
I, I don't know if, if this analogy continues that there's a green light yet. Um, and, and so there are a number of practical considerations. I like to be pragmatic. Um, and so looking ahead to seeing, okay, I, I have a client or I'm a market participant um, that's un, that receives a subpoena from the SEC. What does that mean? Aside from looking out and wondering, okay, what will the damages be? What are the remedies if there are any at the end of this road? But in the intervening period, there's a chilling impact on, on capital raises. Um, you have to make disclosures about, well, there's, we received a subpoena. So if you're trying to raise capital during that time, it's really difficult. Operationally, the, this ongoing proceeding is, is clearly going to impact an issuer's operations. Um, it's also going to be a distraction to the executive team. It's also costly litigation. Um, when you're defending that type of action, it's just, it's, it's going to have legal fees and, and those will start building up. Plus, and this might actually be the worst aspect of it, but securities regulators often move at a exceedingly glacial pace. So it may be months, it may be years before there's any sort of resolution, even in the best case scenario where the SEC ultimately decides we're not going to pursue this action any further. You've lost months, maybe years defending the action. That economic loss hurts, but you've also burned through the most valuable resource that we have in, in this world, which is time. And in the crypto space in particular, time really is the number one commodity. Um, as my grandmother always tells me, if you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. So now your competitors can, can take advantage of all the time you lost. So that's kind of it from a practical perspective. And um, I, I too don't want to monopolize time. So I'll, I'll let Tim speak as well. Yeah, Tim, I mean, what, is this, what does this mean in terms of advising clients on, on initial coin offerings and, and how they think about this? No, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things to, to really emphasize is that blockchain isn't one thing. Uh, digital assets are not one thing. Uh, you can look at a ream of 500 sheets of blank paper as you put it into your printer, and that can be turned into a novel, song lyrics, an invoice, a contract. Uh, it can be turned into anything. Uh, blockchain is a record-keeping system. You can keep records in a leather-bound ledger, on an Excel spreadsheet, on a hard drive, on an Excel spreadsheet up in the cloud, or on, in essence, a decentralized spreadsheet on 10,000 different computers simultaneously. So we really need to always take a deep breath and understand the actual technology. How is the technology being used in this case or the other case? Uh, as Professor Goforth said, the initial use case was trying to create some sort of virtual currency. Uh, we now have blockchains that are Turing complete. Uh, Ethereum was the first one to attempt this. By that, I mean, it's, it's a world computer. What, what Ethereum does is create a programming environment. Uh, that's incredibly powerful. And you build things on Ethereum rather than keeping track of who owns this particular Bitcoin over time, you can actually run programming on it. So in the, in the last, I'd say five years, I probably met with the SEC four dozen times talking about a whole variety of issues. And, and I think the better understanding that you have of the underlying technology, the better you can advise, whether it's a crypto native firm or a financial institution dealing with this technology, how to navigate the particular thoughts and concerns. Uh, the SEC has a lot of different opinions, uh, oftentimes on the same topic, uh, and understanding where those positions have evolved from and what's possible and what's not possible 
is I think incredibly important. Uh, the, the SEC has been reluctant over the last few years to give any example other than Bitcoin and Ether of other tokens that do not fall afoul of Howie. Now the SEC has their, uh, the, the, are quite busy uh, dealing with the XRP litigation, which I think will be incredibly, incredibly important to determine whether or not their interpretation of Howie in the context of digital assets survives as law, or, or whether or not courts will have a different view of Howie. And I think you can read Howie uh, left to right, page after page, and I think you can come to different conclusions than the staff has come to uh, and have enunciated uh, around their particular interpretation of Howie, but it's their interpretation of Howie until the court decides otherwise. So what we try to do with our clients is engage in a really meaningful conversation with them about what is their technology, how are they building out, uh, are they doing something in an area where the SEC has expressed heightened concerns. Um, and, and in addition to the April 2019 framework uh, that was mentioned earlier, we've also gleaned an enormous amount from off the record, uh, unwritten conversations we've had with the staff that they think a lot more than they say. Uh, and I think that you have to deal with that ambiguity between the written words of what has come out of the SEC and kind of the, um, well, you, the, the, the oral history, so to speak, of things that they have said in, in very particular contexts. And, and, and I'll draw, to close kind of this initial observation, I'll, I'll draw a clear line uh, in terms of the SEC's priorities. The, the SEC has a real concern around how we risk, that, that these, a lot of these things that have been created and sold are security. That's a discrete basket of issues that, 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 that need to be analyzed kind of almost as a topic in itself. They are relatively relaxed about blockchain technology as a, a, an evolutionary upgrade in the way that we connect our computers to, to one another. Uh, Mark Andreessen said that, this was a few years ago, that blockchain is an evolutionary step change in computer architecture and needs to be recognized as, as such. The SEC is relatively relaxed about building financial structures and investment products on blockchain. We work, this is public knowledge in the SEC filings, we worked with one of our clients, Franklin Templeton, in building the first SEC registered money market fund built on the Stellar blockchain. Quite revolutionary. Is that an SEC registered stable coin? I'll, I'll leave it to people uh, to, to decide amongst themselves, but you know, that conversation with the staff that blockchain is here to stay, the conversation with the staff that, you know, like you adapted to the internet. And I remember that I was a young associate when all those uh, pronouncements were being made 20 some odd years ago, that we're going to have to get used to blockchain. It's a technology that's not going to go back in the bottle. So Stephanie, answer your question it really is under working with clients in this area, understanding what they're building and why they're building it. And then analyzing it from the framework of what we understand the SEC's priorities to be. And Tim, just a uh, kind of a, a quick point, just to um, just to dovetail with, with what you were saying. Um, Chairman Gensler has, has said on numerous occasions, come in and talk to us, and that's been taken a number of ways, but I think, you know, we've, we've taken it, and it sounds like you have in many ways as well, quite literally, that having conversations with the regulators and, and 
these discussions can be very productive and, and really helpful to get some clarity um, where he's also said, unless you have an exemption, you need to register. And, and he believes that most tokens are, are securities. And so working with the regulators to figure out the right framework and, and um, going through whether it's a registration process or finding an exemption is, is key as well. No, I agree with that. Part, part of uh, my engagement with the staff has always been with one eye on education, just better understanding what the technology is, uh, better uh, arming them with information about, well, this is why things look the way they do, um, and really take on board the, you know, the, the advice that they have given. We, we, we mentioned earlier, there was an earlier question about utility. Uh, and we can talk all day long about what is or is not utility, but the SEC has been clear that future utility is not utility. Uh, the utility has to be in the present tense. And we can argue about whether that's driven by Howie or that's just something that's been read into Howie. Uh, but it's interesting to be able to pull together these tidbits, especially you know, to my earlier point when the SEC is so incredibly reluctant now to put things in writing and, and be definitive. We've heard Many times, many people at the staff say that many things listed on Coinbase are securities under our view, but every morning I turn on my computer and Coinbase is still there, uh, and those securities or non-securities are still available uh, on my phone or my laptop or tablet. So, so I think you know we're working with the staff at a very difficult time for them. Um, it, it's hard enough to make good law when you're doing it incrementally, uh, but the concept that the SEC are, are rolling out are not things they've used before. They didn't have a concept of decentralization or active participant that they could take from broker-dealer regulation or they could take from money market funds or they could take from trust indentures and just plop it over here. They're creating this in whole, from whole cloth. And that's why having conversations with the staff, I think is important because at least it gives you an opportunity to have them address specifics of what you're building out rather than being left in in, in abstractions or, or very uh, unhelpful descriptions like the April 2019 framework, which the footnote is great. I can't remember if it's at the front or the back, but it basically is published by the SEC and disclaimed by the entirety of the SEC past, present, or, or future. This is not to be relied on. It almost should say it's not to be read, uh, but I think that's the, that's the difficulty with advising here. But as we see, People aren't sitting on their hands. The future is being built today, and we've been very lucky to work with a number of our clients on, on building that future. We're all trying to wrap our minds around this in, in real time. It's, it's a really challenging, complex set of issues. And, and also, there's a number of regulatory frameworks like you know the DOJ, FinCEN, the IRS, CFTC. Um, is this a commodity, and, and what does that mean? Does, is there overlap then? With the SEC, does that mean that the SEC should lay off enforcement actions? Um, in, in many instances, I, I think crypto is, is, is very frequently, you know, considered a, a money service business, MSB. Um, you know, there, there's the money transmitter aspect of this. And so not only does the SEC have to consider securities regulations and, and where does this fall, but also what's the overlay, what's the regulatory regime with, with these other agencies as well. I, I certainly agree with all of that. One of the things that I have noticed, you know, as an academic who's not actually advising folks is that sometimes I'll read reports that make it sound like, yes, Boyd Gensler says, 
I need more of you to come in. I need more of you, the exchanges to talk to me. I need more of the issuers to talk to me. And then you have actions against companies like Telegram who say, I've been talking to you. I talked to you for 14 months. You knew this was coming. The day before we are getting ready to release our new token, that's when you file your TRO. We've been talking for 14 months. You get hints from the Ripple folks that we've been talking to you. Why didn't you tell us back in 2015 when we settled with Fincen and you knew that we were still selling XRP? Why didn't you tell us then that what we were doing was improper? You have in the kick litigation, the, the announcements that we've been talking. Coinbase, it would Paul Wells saying, look, we've been talking, you've known, we put out a public statement in June that we were going ahead with a LIND program a lot like not identical, but a lot like the LIND program in BlockFi. And then you come and say, oh, we're, we've decided that you are going to be violating uh, the laws if you go forward. So we've, we're, if you go forward, we will initiate an enforcement action. So from the outsider perspective, sometimes it feels like come into my parlor to said the spider to the fly. And if you do, you are giving the SEC a heads up of which targets to make next in this regulation by enforcement regime that I concur it, it has been what has happened. So I, I'm seeing that as an outsider. And, and I've heard other people mention that as well. Yeah, no, that's a fine point. And I think, you know, the SEC's opinions have changed over time. I think that's evident. Um, you know, back in 2015, just to give a very concrete example, um, you know, every registered investment company who, who wants to has been permitted to invest in the grayscale Bitcoin trust, so-called GBTC. Uh, and that had been for up until the beginning of last year, the exclusive way for RICS uh, to get exposure to the value of Bitcoin was through GBTC. So you take, you know, mom, apple pie and, and registered investment companies as being these great American traditions. And you say the only thing you can do is invest in GBTC up to 15% of your assets. But then GBTC goes and says, well, can we be approved as a, for, for retail distribution as, a, uh, as an ETF? Well, of course not. Um, so you are fine with RICS putting their money into us. So ultimately, retail investors are getting exposure, but you're uncomfortable with the direct holdings of BDC and public and private keys uh, for, for anyone to invest in us directly. And oh, by the way, anyone who has a, a, a trading app can go in and trade GBTC because they found a way to get it uh, uh, trading retail. So anyone on the planet who wants to can buy GBTC on an app, but it's not subject to a registration statement and therefore publicly available. You know, that's a narrative that has been unwinding over the last several years. So um, I, I, we just have to be prepared for that, be prepared for the SEC to take a whole variety of, of, of different uh, positions uh, I remember the quote from Winston Churchill about Americans during the war. You can always rely on an American to do the right thing. They just have to exhaust all the other alternatives. And I know the SEC is going to get there uh, eventually. Be, and this is incredibly difficult things to understand and to visualize and, and to be able. So I have utmost faith that, that there is progress being made with the staff, but it will be incremental. It will face turns and twists and, and the like. Uh, having a conversation with the SEC is something that, you know, we talk to a lot of clients about. Uh, and there are projects where it makes sense and there are projects where it doesn't make sense. And sometimes 
uh, geo-blocking the United States and building the technology and, and launching the technology internationally first is, is really the only pragmatic way of, uh, of getting there. You know, I, I, I've been reminded by more than one client uh, that America didn't invent the internet. The World Wide Web was created by a Brit living and working in Switzerland. We just happened to monetize it. Uh, and if you're like me and you know you look at the, the DNA around Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum, you see a lot of Canada and the United States. It's very much a North American technology, although developed globally with a lot of contributors. But it may well be that because of this uncertainty, uh, the great companies and the great efforts of, of blockchain might be built outside the US. And that would be unfortunate. So you know we have that conversation about, do you build it? Do you build it here in America? Do you build it somewhere else? When do you have that conversation with the SEC? And I, I, I don't think there's any one right answer for all clients and all projects in, in all circumstances. It's just something that has to be weighed. Yeah, one of the other things, again, as a researcher and academic, when I start looking at the SEC's enforcement action versus the enforcement actions that are taking place around the globe, the SEC by far is the most active national enforcer in terms of the number of cases, the number of cases that do not involve fraud, and the dollar volume of penalties. Most other nations, when they do instigate enforcement actions against crypto-based businesses, tend to do so with warnings, cease and desist, um, similar very low-level fines. And in BlockFi, you saw $100 million, and, and you certainly see major orders. And I think another thing that you're seeing in the SEC is its willingness to be aggressive. You look at what they're doing with regulation ATS and sort of the way they are sneaking in there the definition of exchange to try and reach DeFi. So you have a statutory definition of exchange that says it's a marketplace or a facility for bringing together buyers and sellers. And then in the proposed amendments to Reg ATS, no, exchange also includes communication protocols. And they are doing that without any specific reference to DeFi or crypto, but I certainly think that's a, a very aggressive stance to take unless you are specifically trying to get at a problem you see that doesn't fit well into the existing legislative structure. All right, well, I think probably uh, <laughs> um, time to segue to a slightly different um, but, but related topic that we've really already started to, to touch on, which is um, funds investing in digital assets. So whether they are private funds, registered funds, um, you know, there's real interest in achieving investment exposure uh, to, to these assets. So maybe Tim, if you want to kick it off in terms of uh, the different fund structure considerations you see. Sure, absolutely. Uh, one of the first things that, that we saw that crossed my desk, and, and it was because I did a lot of private fund work and still do, uh, was that you know in the course of you know 2013, 14, 15, you saw a lot of private funds, hedge funds, and other sorts of things either created solely for the purpose of investing in crypto or um, having you know, a multi-strategy uh, approach and, and wanted to allocate some money into crypto. And because of uh, the way that we regulate private funds here in the US, unlike in Europe where there's 
something like an AIFMD directive that, that establishes an overall framework, there's the potential for immense amount of innovation in, in private funds here, funds that are exempt under the Investment Company Act under, for example, 3C1 or, or 3C7. So really that was the lion's share of, of what, we were, what we were seeing over, over those initial years. And you know, this is important because it does drive you know, how you structure these sorts of vehicles. If the only thing you hold are digital assets that are not considered to be security, so you're holding, let's say, a portfolio that's 50% Ether and 50% and Bitcoin, those are not securities. That vehicle is not an investment company. Uh, now, if it does hold securities or things that you think might be subject to what we call Howey risk, then you might have to build exemptions like 3C1 or 3C7. Uh, one of the reasons that really, I think hundreds of thousands of people now own the Grayscale vehicle, which is a private fund that holds exclusively Bitcoin, is since it's not an investment company, you do not need to perfect 3C1. You do not need to perfect 3C7. So we continue to see a lot of innovation, a lot of excitement around private funds going into DeFi, private funds buying NFTs, things that are literally probably a decade away for registered investment companies. Uh, and mutual funds and the like, um, really giving fund managers and, and uh, the, the opportunity to experiment, the opportunity to learn, to understand what is this ecosystem, uh, pri private funds, and also separately managed accounts. Uh, again, where you don't have the requirements of the Investment Company Act of, of 1940. But really, you know, a lot of people believe the future will be fought and won on the basis of what our registered investment companies are able to do. And that's where, you know, I started the narrative a few minutes ago by talking about, you know, an early decision. I don't know who was at lunch, who was in the office when the phone call came in uh, to the SEC, but apparently, you know, in 2015, 2016, the all clear was given for, for 40 Act funds to invest in, in GBTC. And we saw through 2000 and 2001, the number of funds uh, getting exposure to Bitcoin indirectly through GBTC increased and increased. We also saw some other indirect exposures to GBTC uh, to Bitcoin be permitted for registered funds. Uh, cash settled futures, uh, which uh, were created just a few years earlier, I believe in 2018 and early 2019, cash settled futures were allowed. Uh, and then for some reason, a few Canadian uh, listed products, some of which physically hold Bitcoin. Uh, that was decided that that was going to be okay. Eventually, now we have an ETF uh, that gets uh, financial exposure to Bitcoin by investing entirely in cash settled futures, which is, in point of fact, a horrible investment strategy because of something we all now know is called contango, which means that the rolling of these futures contracts, in effect, puts a 5 to 10% cost drag on the structure as opposed to just being able to hold Bitcoin generally, but we see the SEC making tentative steps, uh, not necessarily as part of an overarching uh, philosophy or overarching strategy, but really trying to adapt to, to the, the rising demand. But what don't we have? The SEC still has a lot of ground it will need to cover in the next decade. We still have no direct exposure to any digital asset uh, in, in kind of a private public key pair where they actually own the asset in a, in a meaningful way, the same way you or I, uh, Stephanie, would be able to hold, hold the asset. That is some time away. Uh, also, indirect exposure to any other digital asset is, is currently not doable. 
with regards to the SEC. And what we're seeing is, is a process uh, by which the SEC comes to understand a new technology like Bitcoin, comes to understand a new way of getting access to it like cash settled Bitcoin futures. And then slowly, incrementally, the SEC becomes comfortable with that uh, and allows that to happen. Now, I'm optimistic, I always am about the, the SEC, uh, that they will come to, to grips with this technology and these insights. They will do so in response to being pushed. They will do so in response to being asked questions and nudged. I don't think given all the other pressures on the SEC when it comes to making policy in the space that we can expect like a EU style directive or consulting or discussion paper uh, where the SEC has just thought it all out and, and will pronounce uh, kind of pulling it out of whole cloth. I really do think you get what you ask for. Uh, and to the extent that you keep asking things and you find the right combination of product features uh, eventually the SEC can get to a place where they approve that. But I think engaging, taking uh, Professor Goforth's point earlier about there is this kind of catch-22, do we talk to the SEC or do we not? But to get the needle to move, certain conversations will need to be had with the SEC. The great example is two years almost to the day before the, the first Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin futures ETF was approved in, in November of 2021. In November of 2019, the SEC approved a closed-ended registered fund operating as an interval fund, the Stone Ridge NYDIG fund, permitted it to invest up to $25 million of AUM into cash settled futures, limiting the people who got into the vehicle by people who come through IFAs. So this was the prototype. This was the MVP, the minimal viable product that came out a full two years beforehand. Um, the interesting thing is that gives the SEC the ability to learn, the ability to familiarize itself. And that's the approach that we take. Understand what level of doability is this potential product or service that our client wants to offer. You know, what sort of conversations can we have with the staff about it in order to portray it in its best and most clearest light? Uh, and at a time when Bitcoin ETFs were, were not being seen as being viable, uh, we worked with the SEC to get the Franklin Money Market Fund approved. And if you were to say to someone just in industry or a civilian on the street, how do you think the SEC staff would feel about building a money market fund on the Stellar blockchain? Most people will say it's a no-hoper. They can't even get their hands around, heads around Bitcoin. But we demonstrated exactly the opposite and understanding that blockchain as a technology isn't something the staff finds frightening or concerned. They have a lot of very specific issues around ICOs and, and, and certain bit cryptos like Bitcoin that they need help clarifying in their own mind and their own understanding before they feel they can release that on, on the wider world. So being able to navigate that, that, uh, that, that path is, is, I think, critical for us getting the results our clients want. Yeah, Tim, I, I think you did a really nice job covering kind of the waterfront. The, the one thing I'll say is disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. Um, that's communications with the SEC, but also in, um, in offering docs. I think it's really important for, for funds and issuers who are portfolios of, of fund, companies of funds to disclose, disclose, disclose. So for, and, um, for investment funds, private investment funds, um, disclosing kind of the, your, your strategy, 
um, investment strategy and, and that you're investing in, in this new technology, you're investing in crypto and being as forthright and, and making as many material disclosures um, and having no uh, material omissions, I, I think is, is really key here. No, I, I wanna echo that and, and tie something to, to what Professor Goforth said kind of earlier about the, the levels of fines and, and the levels of enforcement actions. You know, America was built on litigation. That's just what we do here. We sue each other for any opportunity we can and our regulators take that on board and are very uh, enforcement led. I say though, I point people, when you read through the judgments uh, when, when they're released, they do break down into two groups. There are those crazy kids in the basement who invented this food rating app and they put a token in it. Uh, they get the same treatment, but the consequences to them uh, are not nearly as dire as those who are being pursued, who have raised large amounts of money, who've done it in very flamboyant, slightly uh, uh, not always smelling completely fresh and, and above board, you really do see disparate actions from the SEC uh, when it comes to the type of person. The SEC feels, and I have to uh, maybe disagree with their interpretation of Howie, but they have been 100% transparent since the Dow report in, in June 2017. No one can put their hand up and said, well, I'm shocked the SEC is concerned here. So that's where I think you see more aggressive enforcement was really the SEC's only option because they weren't reading the press releases, they weren't reading the report on the Dow, uh, and yet the ICO mania was just going, going, going. And I, I, I think you know understanding that divide is is very important. I'll I'll, I'll point out uh, kind of the counter argument to or the, or the counterpoint to the SEC is is just aggressively prosecuting in this area. Uh, the Ether ICO was illegal under Section 5, based on literally every single thing the SEC staff has said about this topic. But as far as I'm aware, not a single subpoena has ever been sent to Vitalik or, uh, or any of the founders uh, or anyone involved in that. We've, we made this decision, someone at the staff made a decision in 2018 that Ether is not a security, but they're not being pursued the way that XRP and Ripple, for example, are being pursued. And Max, I think that goes to your, your point about, you know, disclose, disclose, disclose. The other interesting thing about XRP is we were told last year that it is a security. It was immediately delisted from every U.S. exchange with, with any sort of reputation or, 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 or desire to continue. And again, as far as I know, not a single subpoena has, has flown against anyone saying, well, by definition, therefore, you were an illegal exchange because you were trading XRP, which we now say is an illegal um, uh, security. So we're in this conundrum about what the SEC is willing to say and do and what they're not. But I think good advice, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, let's, let's treat our customers and our clients and our counterparties uh, in an upfront way. Let's try to maintain within the boundaries that the SEC has been willing to pronounce. And then, you know, do the best we can with our clients to build the best technology we can as compliant as we know we can be. And when the SEC says no, fractionalized NFTs are securities, no, DeFi is a security under Reeves, then we have to adapt and adopt the, the, the strategy. And I think that sort of nuance is, is in everyone's best interest. 
to, to understand what is doable and to build out as much of that as, as can be in as compliant and disclosure focused way as possible. And so what about, I guess, and maybe this is getting too far into the details, but are there considerations associated with these types of funds in terms of valuation, custody, ongoing compliance considerations that are perhaps different than um, equity funds, for instance? Absolutely. It goes to the very nature of, of the technology. Uh, the point of, of Bitcoin and, and blockchain initially uh, was to allow peer-to-peer -peer transacting. The, 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 I was in London at the time in October 2008 when the white paper came out, and, and there was a real concern about, well, what would happen if the ATMs go dark for a week? You know, how, how, what happens if the banking system were to, were to fail, something out of It's a Wonderful Life, where you can't, you can't get money for groceries or things like that? And, and the very nature of the technology is peer-to-peer, -peer, so I can send Stephanie value a few Satoshis of a, of a Bitcoin, the same way I can send you, Stephanie, a, a PDF file or photos of my vacation or, or what have you, instantaneously, directly with one another without any other set of human fingerprints around the world touching that. And, and how do you custody that? It's not meant to be custodied. It's, it really wasn't built as financial investments. It was built as this peer-to-peer -peer programmable money. And so things like custody, I think the SEC is right to ask questions. Those questions, I think, are, 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 are entirely well-founded. We have a financial system that is based on intermediation because it grew up 400, 300, 200 years ago when we had share certificates and loans and, and physical pieces of paper that had to be handled. And as we've moved into dematerializing uh, and, dis and, 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 and de-documenting uh, a lot of our investments in financial instruments, we still have to deal with the DNA level of blockchain, which is that it doesn't require by itself any need for anyone to custody anything. You hold your private keys, you be your own bank, hold your private keys however you want. So I think the SEC is going to continue to have to learn and educate itself and understand the deployment of this technology so they can understand if custody means anything, it probably means who's holding the private key. But what are the options? What, what, what does the technology demand? What do users of the technology want? And somehow in the combination of those two analyses, try to understand, well, this is what good custody must mean. It must be possible to custody a digital asset in compliance with SEC rules and regulations. We just have to figure out what we want that to be. I think, I think valuation is a question that I have a little bit less support for the SEC's kind of uh, meanderings and thoughts and, and, and decision-making around that. You know, we have more information about the trading of Bitcoin than we have anything else gets traded. Uh, more markets, more people, more data points. Uh, you know, obviously trading on exchanges, a lot of centralized exchanges have raised a lot of issues about spoofing and front running and, and wash sales and, and, and fake transactions and, and the like. So I, I understand that element of it. It, but you know, Bitcoin has survived and thrived for, for 13 years. And you know, we have now futures that are trading on it. We have a variety of investment products that are getting access to it. I think the issue about valuation, to, to quote Hester Peirce, uh, hashtag crypto mom, one of the one of the great commissioners now who, who are really engaging at the technology really directly. There are so many prior investment products that have never been put through the moving goalpost process that we've seen around Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETFs specifically and other 
products. If you look at you know the Palladium trusts and other rare earth trusts, you know there is nothing like the requirements being put on crypto land in order to get this ETF approved, unlike what was approved in the 90s and the 80s before that. So, so I think, you know, engage the SEC, uh, talk to them where you can, explain to them what you want to do, and, and, and take any incremental win as a win. Uh, I, I think, you know, as much as people in the industry might find that the Bitcoin future ETF is suboptimal, it has a 5 to 10% cost drag on it, at least it got approved. Now we can take the next step and the next step and the next step. And, and that means talking to them about valuation and talk to them about liquidity and talking to them about custody and talking to them about reporting uh, and help them get up the educational curve that, that, that we know they'll get up eventually. All right. Max, did you wanna add anything? <laughs> yeah, look, with, with this technology, it's, it's so innovative and it's cutting edge and it's changing all the time. It's impossible, next to impossible, for the regulations to keep up with the technology. And so because of that, there's always going to be this, the regulatory chase to catch up to the technology. And I think, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Things, things are trending in, in the right direction. And, and Tim, um, I think your points about, um, you know, just being open with, with the regulators and working with them. And, and education is, is key. And, and we're all getting educated, I think. At least I am daily, um, as, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around things um, as as technology changes and, and evolves, seemingly second by second every day. Yeah, I would just add, you know, the the problem I see is when the SEC actually gets ahead of itself a little bit, and I think they have done that in the exchange context. And I thought Hester Peirce's reaction, her dissent to the Poloniex decision, sure, Poloniex, which was an exchange, and the SEC said, no, you gotta, you can't be selling to the US folks because you're not registered here. And Hester said, sure, they could have registered. And then they would have waited and waited and waited and waited some more because we don't have in place the path to compliance. Uh, and that's really very troublesome and unfortunate and challenging for you guys with your clients. And, and so where do, you, where do you think we're we're headed? I mean, I know there was a recent executive order on digital assets, um, which seems to indicate that there, there might be some change, but I know we see many uh, proposals and whatnot. So where, where, where do you think we'll, we'll end up, I guess? I can't predict where we'll, wind up, but I do think that the the pronouncement, the executive order that says, gee, we should study this and we should be balanced. We need to balance the need to protect against fraud and to protect our financial markets, but also protect the technology. Every regulator says that too. Clayton said it. I mean, the, the former chairman of the SEC, uh, Gary Gensler, our current, current <laughs> chairman says that all the time. All the agencies are saying we're willing to work together but I should take the lead. Um, this is, it sounds good. Yes, it's a recognition, I think, of things that everybody on the panel has said, but blockchain is, is here to stay. Crypto assets of some sort or another are here to stay. And I, I can't predict where the regulation is going because frankly, I can't predict where crypto assets are going next. I, I was very encouraged when I, I saw the, the Biden um, announcement and, and, and read the, the uh, executive order. Uh, it is acknowledgement that, that 
really mature grown-up conversations have to be had about this and it impacts every single part of government uh, at every level federal and, and state and, and local that's how powerful this will be i think that the flaw that i would find with the way that this is being discussed by by our regulators uh to just what was mentioned a moment ago uh what was that you know we should be the lead regulator i i find that to be an incredibly unproductive conversation to have it would be the equivalent of 1997 and we're all just getting used to amazon and internet and and world wide web and browsers and the like it would be like the sec chairman at the time saying well because securities can be sold on the world wide web we need to be the lead regulator for the entirety of, of world wide web uh, and make sure that there aren't any securities attached to any emails or that any emails on offers or, or sales under section five of, of, of the 33 act, that would be patently absurd. Um, you know, it's like there being a minister or a government department for anything put on paper uh, because paper is a revolutionary technology we need to make. No, every regulator had to deal with the internet and email and World Wide Web and, and things like that. And the thing I liked about that is it really recognized that really the entirety of government is going to have to come to grips with blockchain the same way we came to grips with the World Wide Web. And, and we did that without creating a, a new department or, or giving authority to the internet to a department, but everyone doing their math, updating their policies and procedures and rulemaking uh, and just adapting to life under the new technology. Max, anything to add to, I guess, close us out, uh, because I think we're just about out of time here. Yeah, look, I, I, I think I, I see, obviously, a, a bright future here. Um, I, there, there can and there will be, there will continue to be bumps along the way. Um, but I, I think we'll continue to get clarity. Um, I would love more clarity. Um, I'm champing at the bit to, uh, to get there. But um, there is some urgency to kind of Maybe not right the ship is, is the right way to put it, but but hopefully we'll have the wind at our back and, and smoother sailing ahead. All right. Well, thank you all uh, very much um, for participating. I think at this point, um, I will I guess turn it over to the the second panel. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Felicity Slater, and I'm a 3L at um, Boston University School of Law. I'm on the editorial of BU's Journal of Science and Technology Law, and we're really excited to be presenting this program today in conjunction with um, the review of banking and financial law and the BBA. So I'm going to turn it over first to Jesse Taylor, who I will be co-moderating this panel with, um, to introduce himself. And then each of today's speakers can introduce themselves in the order in which they will speak. So first, Professor Carol Sullivan, then Chris Hart, and final, final, finally, Donald Schelke. Thanks. Wow. Thanks, Felicity, and, and hi, folks. Uh, my name is Jesse Taylor. I'm an associate at Morgan Lewis in the Technology and Outsourcing uh, Practice Group. Um, we've got a really great panel for you guys today, um, kind of touching on a few different areas um, within 
both privacy, uh, digital identity, and commercial contracting with NFTs. That's going to be a little bit different than the uh, format that we just have, where we're going to be kind of broken into individual segments talking about these sections. But uh, we're really excited to discuss this topic, so I'll, I'll hand it over uh, to Professor Sullivan to introduce herself. Okay, thanks, Jesse and Felicity. Good afternoon, everybody. It's very nice to be here. Uh, a little bit about myself. I'm a professor at Georgetown University. I head up the uh, Cyber Smart Research Center at Georgetown University. So we're the first National Science Foundation to, uh, research center that's uh, accredited to do multidisciplinary cyber research. So uh, that's an exciting development for us. My areas are international privacy and security and digital identity, and I believe that's what I'll be speaking on today. So thank you. Chris, you can go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, uh, hi everybody. My name is Chris Hart. I'm a partner at Fully Hoag, where I co-chair our privacy and data security group. Um, I also teach uh, data privacy compliance at uh, Northeastern Law School. Very happy to be here. Hi folks, my name is Don Schelke. Uh, I'm Jesse's colleague at uh, Morgan Lewis and Bacchus. I'm a partner there and specialize in commercial transactions. So I buy, trade, and uh, sell widgets, technologies, and services for a living, including um, a lot of work in the uh, blockchain and NFT space. Okay, great. So um, starting with you, Professor Sullivan, I, I first, you know, I want to get into more specifics, but first I kind of wanted to ask you to just describe in broad strokes what's at stake um, when we talk and when you do work on digital identity. Okay, well, I can see from the slide that you're, you're talking really about what's happening in the U.S., uh, so I'll give you some international perspective. I mean, a lot of countries around the world are really moving very rapidly towards a completely open digital economy. And as part of that move, they are moving to a standardised digital identity for all government services, and that is really also going into the private sector. So in the United States, we are at a different stage, so we haven't got that kind of unified approach yet. I think uh, if we want to predict the future, I would hedge the bets that it is almost inevitable that that, that same development happens here, whether it's going to be quickly or more slowly is a matter of debate. So the questions on the slide is, you know, certainly we don't have a current uh, consistent platform for this. What I'm noticing in the United States is that it's really in many ways, the private sector is playing a major role in this. So you'll notice, for example, when you log on, often you're asked to log on through Google or through Facebook or some other identity that's been created, often through a social medium rather than the government uh, having an official government digital identity. So there's a different mechanism going on here, but I, I would say that probably an official government identity is almost inevitable. And I know that's not a, always a palatable thing for Americans to deal with, but I think that's where we're heading. Great, thank you. And then um, just to, to move into some of the more specifics as, as we you know, get deeper into this conversation, um, 
Could you just talk a little bit about, about what you mean when you talk about digital identity? And then I know in your work, you also speak about transaction identity. Yeah. So provide an introduction. Okay. So this, this is actually very early work of mine. Uh, so my background is I'm a practicing lawyer. I'm actually a commercial attorney. And I did a PhD on digital identity. And my PhD topic was what is digital identity? And as a result of that, I got my PhD, I got a Fulbright scholarship from that work, and I wrote a book. And it was the book, the first book that had been published looking at digital identity from a legal perspective. So what is it legally? How does it work? What is its definition? And how does it function? What is it, how does it function legally? And what are the implications for businesses and government? So this is the digital identity definition I came up with for that work. So it's simply information that's stored and transmitted in digital form. So it's obviously intangible. And that's something that the law struggles with whenever we have to deal with something that is, doesn't have a physical presence. The second point that you see there on the slide is something that I observed going back as early as 2006. I could see what was happening, that there was digital identity was actually being embedded into everything that was going to going to be important to us in our lives. That has completely come true now. And the interesting story with this is when I first wrote this, I would go to parties and people would say, well, what are you doing your PhD thesis on? And I'd say digital identity. And they go, oh, having nice weather today, aren't we? So people had no concept of what digital identity was. And a few years into the work, people, I would say I'm working on digital identity and they say, oh, my cousin had problems with, with his identity being stolen. So that there was kind of a consciousness awareness of, of something important happening there. And now, of course, everybody talks about digital identity and it's a very big thing. And just to delve down into a little bit deeper as to what this really is, the transaction identity part of it is really the functional part of that identity. So around the world, there are very clear patterns in this. It is almost inevitably, full name, always date of birth, nearly always gender, although that's changing a little bit. And there's usually something of what we call an identifying piece of information, which is a signature, a pin, or a biometric. And it's that set of information that really constitutes the transact, the identity that you use to transact. So you input that information, the system recognises it as something being stored and matching what's on, on, on record, and that facilitates the transaction. So, and if you look at that set of information, it's going right back to the birth certificate, and the birth certificate is a seminal identity document right around the world. So it's very much a paper-based kind of concept that's been built into a digital mode. Would you like me to talk about a right to identity? <laughs> yes, a little bit. Okay. All right. So this is something that I've been talking about for a long time. Again, I think that this is going to be something that we see develop. And it is different from the right to privacy. I think in many ways, the right to identity is a much more important concept than privacy. I have to stress that this is very much an emergent argument. Uh, so there's not been a recognized right to identity um, in this context 
as far as I know, anywhere in the world. But there is a right to identity under the Convention of the Rights of the Child. The bad news for the United States is that the United States is the, I think, one of two countries that is not a signatory to that convention. But the right to identity also exists in European statutes that underpin the GDPR. And we've seen how the GDPR is creeping into international law, particularly into US law. So a lot of these rights can creep in through countries adopting various models of legislation around the world. And let me just explain why I think it's so important and how it's different to a right to identity. Think, for example, someone in, in prison. Their right to privacy can almost be totally removed. They can be under 24-hour surveillance. They have, don't have rights uh, to access things. So their right to privacy can really be removed almost totally. Think about whether their right to identity can be removed. Constitutionally impossible. So that right to identity is a really important concept. And if that could emerge in the law, it provides all sorts of protections that currently we don't have in our legal system around digital identity. Thank you so much. That's super interesting. Um, I think you've, you've touched on some of these things, um, but I just wanted to kind of have you discussed what, what some of the major issues are in managing digital identity currently? Yeah, all of these things are really significant. Uh, and I'll, I'll bring some of the blockchain side into it because there was a point on the earlier slide that I didn't address. So, I mean, obviously fraud and identity theft and, and, and systemic error are very important things. And let me give you some examples of how this can occur. So let's start with the systemic error. This is actually really quite a common thing uh, that, I mean, it's just, if you can imagine it, there's really not a great deal of difference between a computer system messing up things and a, a human simply misfiling information. It's really the same kind of concept. So this can absolutely occur. And I have a colleague um, at, yeah, at the university, every time she goes through passport control in the United States, they direct her through the fast track lane because they think she has a diplomatic passport. There's something embedded in her passport. She has never been in the diplomatic service, but obviously when the passport has been issued, something has gone attached to that passport that gives her automatic access to these things. I mean, it's happened to me at work when I've started a new job, somehow my, I, you know, my telephone number has been linked with the wrong person. So this kind of thing in a digital identity can happen very, very easily and happens quite commonly. And it has enormous impact because it messes everything up. And it's not just a case of the issue being with somebody stealing your whole identity. It's the issue of messing up that set of information. So your full name is correct, but your date of birth is wrong or there's a mix up with the gender recording on the, of the identity. So these things have tremendous impact on a person's life because that set of information is what they use to transact through the digital world. So it's a lot more of those kind of errors, even more so than sort of than fraud. Now let me bring some of the blockchain stuff into this. 
one of the benefits that are touted of blockchain as opposed to you know, uh, other systems is that this, it's thought to be a little bit more secure and to have some, have some other benefits. And the best way to explain this is if you think of the 100-point identity system, most people are familiar with that. If you open an account, you have to go in and prove your 100 points of identity. Nearly always you've got to provide your birth certificate, that's a seminal identity document, maybe a passport, some other things, library memberships, credit cards, so forth. What typically happens with that is that that entity that's trying to verify your identity under the anti-money laundering legislation has to copy that information and keep copies of it within their record system to show that they verified your identity. So over time, you have a person that has multiple copies of all of this information in many different organisations, on different servers, all over the place. And essentially, the individual loses control of that. So where blockchain is, is touted as being a big a value with this is it puts the control back to the user. So rather than providing all of that information every time, basically the user would say, or the individual would say, I'll give you the key to the information on the blockchain. You can go and look at that there. So you don't actually provide, have these copies stored all over the place. It's more centralised. And, and a user can also say, I don't want you to see everything about me. You only have to verify my age. So you just need to know that I'm over the age of 18. You don't need to know my date of birth. So it, that's how it works. And it's also considered very important for people who don't have identities so there, and there's a considerable population around the world that don't. And it's also a big problem with refugees and it will be a problem with the Ukrainian situation we have at the moment where all the systems are just completely knocked out. People can't prove who they are. So by having a digital identity stored or pointed to on a blockchain secures that so that it can navigate around the world and it's touted as being really the building blocks for a global identity in that sense. Going back to the previous slide though, opportunities for fraud, because by building up an identity and putting it on the blockchain in that way, you can actually create a whole new identity. So there's some pluses and some minus, minuses there. I mean, to balance out the discussion here, one of the there's a move in some countries away from this model, away from blockchain, back to not to having a trusted system, but not using blockchain because of some of those um, downsides of it. Australia is one country that's done that. They've gone fully digital. They have a trusted digital identity system, but it's not blockchain based. But that contrasts with many other countries around the world that have a system that is blockchain based for digital identity. Thank you so much. That's that's all really fascinating. And um, we'll return to you at the end. We'll, we'll kind of ask a question for all the participants. But for now, we'll move on to the next speaker. And Chris, um, to kind of tee it up for you, you know, we've, we've heard obviously about a lot about, you know, a lot of the different, you know, regulatory issues that currently exist um, on the block uh, on the blockchain right now. 
and you know we just heard a bit about you know just about the protection of, of digital identity and privacy so with all that being said can you give us a thirty thousand foot view of what um u.s data private uh, data protection laws are um in con uh, with respect to the blockchain and then globally as well sure um uh, and by the way uh professor sullivan that was really fascinating i think a lot of my comments um uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if the tensions will be readily apparent, um, but uh, but I but I do think that there's an interesting conversation to be had between privacy questions and digital identity questions, and the benefit of digital identity in a, in, in a blockchain environment, and some questions in privacy. So, the thirty thousand foot view. The reason that I want to provide this is that um, I I assume that a lot of people who are listening. Uh, or who will be listening to the recorded version know something about privacy, but I also assume a lot of people won't. Um, and so I think it, it might be useful to just have a little bit of table setting because then it becomes clear or clearer where blockchain, where there are questions. Uh, and that's really the issue is there are questions about blockchain and how it fits into privacy regimes. So in the, in the US, um, privacy laws are decentralized. Um, there is no comprehensive data privacy law in the US. If you were to ask me, I'm a betting, if I were a betting man, I would say there won't be in my lifetime. Um, but uh, there are sector specific uh, privacy laws at the federal level. So if you're in a heavily regulated industry like healthcare or uh, finance, uh, you're going to be governed by HIPAA or the GLBA. Um, and then, and then you'll, there are different federal laws for different sectors and different, different issues. It's really at the state level where you see the beginnings of comprehensive uh, privacy laws. And, and um, where you see it, uh, where you have seen it first is California with the um, California Consumer Privacy Act. You now see it in Virginia and Colorado. Um, and other states, uh, in particular Massachusetts, uh, are considering uh, comprehensive privacy, privacy laws. But uh, it still has a long way to go. Every state's got something, has something to say about privacy and security, but it's usually in the breach notification context. Um, it's not in the sort of comprehensive data governance context. Contrast that to the EU and the UK. And, and I'm, I'm talking about them both of them together because post-Brexit, uh, the UK still follows the GDPR more or less. That will almost certainly change. But for now, it's the EU and the UK GDPR. That is a comprehensive data protection regime. And I use data protection very deliberately. Uh, it's privacy, it's governance, it's security. Um, it's, a, it's a comprehensive compliance regime around personal data. Um, it creates privacy rights. It gives privacy rights to individuals. You only see that in the US and the three jurisdictions I talked about. Um, affirmative privacy rights, that is that rights that individuals have and can, um, can use to petition entities that have personal data to do specific things like delete their data, correct their data, stop processing their data, uh, tell them what data they have, port their data. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bundle of privacy rights that come uh, under the GDPR. There are also restrictions uh, around um, what can be processed. So I have here transfer. Um, there are uh, uh, serious restrictions around what can be transferred outside of the EU. Um, essentially, if the EU, the European Commission has determined that a jurisdiction has adequate privacy protections, um, then you can transfer data more or less freely. The US is not one of those jurisdictions. And so that creates a lot of um, issues around how you can uh, legally transfer information uh, uh, from the EU to the US. But the other is the processing itself. You have to be able to uh, find a lawful reason to actually process the data. 
Um, and the GDPR cleaves the world into controllers and processors. So those who are directing the processing of data and those who are directed to process the data. Um, and you have to have a lawful basis to do it. It can be consent, it can be contract, it can be the squishy idea called legitimate, legitimate interests, but there has to be some lawful basis that you can point to. Um, and I, I write here recent changes and attempts at change. Um, there, there have been a lot of efforts in the US to try to bring bring uh, at the state level regimes closer to um, the GDPR. There have even been ones that have tried to go beyond it. New York, New York has tried a couple of times to create uh, fiduciary duties uh, for entities around um, uh, personal data. Um, but that's essentially the lay of the land. And I, I'm probably, I might be anticipating a question you're going to ask, Jesse. I hope you don't mind my jumping in here. But um, you know, we've been talking about blockchain technology, and I think um, in the earlier panel there was um, a, a really succinct definition of blockchain technology. I want to repeat it here, only because I think that um, it can be really complicated, and I'm not a blockchain technician, so I can only go so far anyway. But I, but I do think it's really important to contrast what we've been talking about here about decentralized um, ledger technology, right? Where you have every node, right? Essentially has to agree with every other node if there's going to be any addition or change or change to the, to, um, uh, to the information that's in this distributed ledger um, versus a centralized authority, right? Or some centralized um, uh, way of making sure that information is kept integral. Um, that's a really, really important issue when we're talking about privacy issues around blockchain. So I, I, so I just want people to understand the architecture here really creates the privacy issues because it's distributed among nodes. Everybody's got to agree. So it's, it's essentially immutable. Um, and it's really, really difficult to change. Um, and uh, while information can be uh, hashed or de-identified, that's not the same thing as being fully anonymized. Um, now, the other thing I wanna say, and we haven't spent a ton of time talking about this, but it is important for some of my comments, there is a difference between a public blockchain and a private blockchain. And we're thinking about Bitcoin, for example, we're talking about a public blockchain that anybody in theory uh, can join onto and, and add information to. Um, that's not all. Blockchain technology. Some blockchain technology can be permissioned. Uh, it can be. Um, uh, it can. It can look a lot different from that sort of permissionless uh, public blockchain, and that has certain consequences. So I just. I just wanted to make sure that I laid that out because I think it'll inform a little bit about my thinking um, on the on the privacy side. Um, and, and so I'm happy to continue then. Uh, and on yeah, this. Keep going. Yeah, sure. On on this slide. Um, Blockchain has a promise, right? There seems to be a promise for greater security and greater privacy, right? Because there's no need for a centralized intermediary to share data. Uh, it's distributed. Um, there's less friction for users controlling their data. I actually love the example that Professor Sullivan brought up about um, individuals having the key and giving it selectively uh, based on what sort of information needs to be given in a, in a particular transaction, let's say. Um, so there's, there's potentially less friction in, in controlling data and how it's shared. Um, there's automatic pseudonymity. Uh, I hate this word, by the way. It's used in the GDPR. 
Um, but it's essentially the idea of de-identification without anonymity, right? In the US, we tend to think about any de-identified data as being anonymous, and that's just not how the Europeans think of it. Um, anonymous data, let me give you the example. Uh, an, an anonymous, something that's anonymous is, let's say you ask me to fill out a survey, and I fill out that survey, and you don't ask me for any identifying information. You just say, like, what color, what's my favorite color, what ice cream do I like, um, and um, it, in what geographic region of the U.S. do I live in, right? Um, if you ask me my name uh, and phone number in that same survey, uh, and then you later put it in a spreadsheet, uh, and then you you use the the information without my name and, and phone number, you put that somewhere else, um, but you use my answers to analyze the data, that's pseudonymized. You can connect it back. If you just take my information without my name and phone number, that's anonymous. The reason this matters under the GDPR, uh, and you see sort of snippets of this in, in the CCPA, although it does things a little bit differently, um, is that if something is pseudonymized, it's actually much more secure. It's we like things pseudonymized, right? It's it it makes it um, uh, uh, easier to make sure that it's secured. It's still regulated. It's still regulated. It's not anonymized data. And so all of the things I talked about earlier about the GDPR, lawfulness of processing, concerns about transfer, um, those kinds of things still apply if it's pseudonymized. So you get you get these benefits with pseudonymization. But I just want to make sure people understand it's not it's not anonymized. Um, even though in the US we hear Bitcoin and we think anonymization, and eh, it's not quite true. Um, and it's difficult for third parties to successfully tam tamper with the information. This goes back to what I was saying about immutability, right? You've got to have all the nodes agree if something's going to be uh, different. It's an oversimplification, but that's, that's more or less the idea. Um, and so if somebody wants to tamper with the information then, and the nodes don't agree, you can't do it. So that's the promise of blockchain. So, Chris. Can you, can you talk to me about some of the concerns about you know the ability to protect personal information in line with a strict data protection regime? I know that you know when when GDPR came out and what was it 2018, everyone was pulling their hair out because it was so unclear what what the actual rules and regulations were going to be. So how how um, individuals as well as entities have tried to manage um, that tension. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, it's it's a good question because I think, you know, I will say that in, in some ways in the U.S., outside of the CCPA, there's not a ton to talk about when it comes to the regulatory regime as it might uh, affect blockchain, but there is a lot to talk about the GDPR. And as Professor Sullivan pointed out, the, you know, we're, we're seeing the Brussels effect. And I think that uh, you didn't put it that way, Professor Sullivan, all, I, I did, but, uh, but I think that's more or less correct. Um, the the issue here is that um, it goes back to some of the table setting I was giving around the GDPR, which is, um, you know, number one, uh, around this question of the identification of an individual, right? So because you've got this pseudonymized um, uh, way of, of having personal information, um, it's great if somebody can theoretically control the key that they give to another entity, but it's still, there, there are questions around uh, how much that personal information has to be protected and how easy it can be to get that key um, in order to, uh, to obtain the information. Um, so that's, that's one. You've still got a regulatory structure. It's not anonymized. It's the flip side of the, of the earlier comment. Um, the public blockchain issue is a, is a real concern because, um, because that, that becomes, uh, I think, potentially a greater danger than in a, in a permissioned um, uh, blockchain where 
you might have something like um, a centralized governance structure uh, around, say, terms of use around the blockchain um, and being kicked off a of blockchain, let's say. Um, there are different ways to, to manage it, but public blockchains create, I think, um, greater concern. Um, I, I think that the biggest issue when it comes to uh, blockchain and GDPR, it's not really privacy per se, right? In the sense of disclosure or non-disclosure, it's actually in the privacy rights. It's in this question of, can you delete data? Can you correct data? Can you stop processing data? Can you get access to um, what, what that is? Who's the controller and who's the processor, right? That becomes particularly problematic in a public blockchain. Um, and there's actually a lot of scholarly literature around trying to figure that question out. It's easier in a permission blockchain, but it's much more difficult um, in a public blockchain. And so if, it's a, if, the, if the information is practically speaking immutable, then you cannot exercise these rights. Um, now, there has been guidance in particular from the French Data Protection Authority about how to deal with this. Um, and a lot of it assumes permission blockchains that have um, particular restrictions and requirements around um, the ability to uh, be, have some of these rights enabled. But it, it really does depend on the permissions encryption cryptography of a particular blockchain. Um, and if you're thinking about public blockchains, this becomes quite difficult, um, as does the question of transfer, because in a, in, in a lot of instances, you might need to have consent. Um, and so if, if blockchain is a distributed network where it's going to locations that, uh, where the information is going to locations where an individual might not be otherwise aware, then there's a, there's a real question about um, whether there's meaningful consent. That's really great. And, you know, to kind of wrap it up, I mean, I'm not asking you to resolve this, uh, all the issues in privacy and blockchain in this uh, discussion, but, you know, holistically, what do you think are maybe some resolution points, um, real, realistic resolution points going forward? Yeah, so I do think that, um, one thing I don't have here, I, I, I do think that, um, talking about permission blockchains is really, uh, or, or thinking about how we can use technology in a, in a permission blockchain architecture, I think is a much more effective way to be thinking about the protection of privacy rights and consistency with regulatory regimes. That's, that's the first thing. Um, and if we, whether we're thinking about permission blockchains or public blockchains, um, there does need to be clear notice being provided to individuals. That can be hard, by the way. Because, um, because blockchain uh, as a technology uh, and different blockchain environments can be quite different, it can be difficult for individuals to understand just exactly what's involved in the technology and what it means for their information to be hashed and what it means to have a key um, and how their information is synonymized. But, um, but having very clear notice, uh, including what restrictions um, and what possibilities there are in order to be able to provide uh, to, to effectuate their own privacy rights is, is, is very important. Um, and then even if you can't strictly speaking delete data, just press delete and it's gone, um, there are alternatives to that kind of action that can essentially function as deletion. This is something that the French authorities have said. Essentially, you know, if you can find a way to occlude the data in some way, right? So that it's, a, that it's essentially impossible or nearly impossible to, um, 
to, to be disclosed, then that can function, uh, that can be functional deletion, et cetera. So there are potentially technological ways to, to do that, that kind of thing. Um, rectification is a much more difficult thing, especially with a large blockchain network or, or public blockchain network, because again, all the nodes have to agree. Um, and so, uh, so creating some kind of governance structure in a permission blockchain in order to be able to provide for um, a relatively frictionless way to effectuate that that right uh, rectification or to effectuate a, a, a non-processing uh, right, I think is really the best way of doing it. Public blockchains, it's very, very hard to do these things, but with permission blockchains, you have a lot more leeway to figure out how to, um, how to effectuate these kinds of privacy rights. Great, thank you. Um, and with that, uh, you know, we'll segue into the next topic. Um, which is NFTs and commercial contracting. And you know, what we'll talk about here a little bit is just how you know, the lack of regulation um, has really kind of integrated itself into how um, you know, a lot of commercial, commercial contracts with respect to um, and negotiating NFTs has, has kind of evolved. So Don, I'll, I'll kick it up to you and, and let you go in any direction you want. Thanks, Jesse. So you know, it's interesting because we just spent you know, the better part of an hour and a half talking about regulatory challenges, the uncertainty in the marketplace, um, even folks that have dedicated their lives to the subject matter uh, at hand don't know exactly how it's gonna shake out or even what the current status is. Uh, that said, I know one thing for sure, there's a lot of money being made uh, in blockchain and in particularly on the NFT front coming around. And so because of that, we are seeing a, to give to put it in perspective, just six days ago, Fortune, you know, published some findings that um, between 2020 and 2021, there was a 200% um, increase uh, in last year's NFT sales alone, which are a very limited subset of what NFTs will eventually eventually be, was 17.6 billion dollars. And so you're seeing this tremendous explosion, even in an uncertain legal status. So. These issues are going to have to be resolved. Um, uh, I'm sure certain areas of where they'll be resolved, um, uh, you know, may may favor some some com commercial transactions or other transactions over the others. Uh, but the bottom line is they're here to stay, and I don't see any amount of regulatory oversight going away and 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 sort of severely curtailing the technology itself of the blockchain and these things. The ability to authenticate a unique digital asset is too valuable and it exists outside of any particular regulatory framework. And so we thought, you know, given that, that, that factor and the fact that there's a lot of, you know, lawyers on the phone that might be taking calls from clients, you know, asking about all of these, you know, what are the deals are we seeing out there in the marketplace, despite this, you know, um, the, this this challenging regulatory framework, and so really, what we're looking at, and we're going to focus on the NFTs because the cryptocurrency, again, those are largely regulatory driven. They are driven by, um, by you know, by, by the currency rules and the stuff that was in the part of the 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 the, the first presentation. What we're going to focus on today are NFTs, and it's a particular type of asset digital asset that's, that, that exists on a blockchain. And in its present form, um, you know, what you're seeing out there and what's driving the explosion of fees are collectibles. 
And if you look in this interest, I like this tab because it just shows kind of all the different commercial transactions that are swirling around in this environment. And, and you look at the, um, and I think there's a general feeling about how these types of transactions fit in to the regulatory env environment and the way that my clients, uh, to, to give us a sense of scope, I probably get between three to five um, uh, actual commercial deals a week on, on, on this stuff. Uh, and that's just our offices in Boston handling these. So there's a tremendous amount of activity. It's come to dominate a significant part of my practice, these transactions. And so what, what you're seeing, I think the overall feeling is from a regulatory standpoint, the, there'll be a sufficient runway and there'll be, um, there won't be the lowest hanging fruit to say, to, 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 to put it bluntly, there's uh, the, the crypto guys and the cryptocurrency folks, they're gonna go down the regulatory rabbit hole first. And then probably following that, there'll be things like the securitized tokens and fractionalized interest. And there, there's a lot of chaff in front of this collectibles market that's out there that most clients are looking at it and saying, hey, look, I'm going to get in on this and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to operate in this regulatory environment and I'm going to do the best I can comply. But, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can do a lot of deals when there's uncertainty until, it's certain, until doors are closed. And I think that's the current framework right now that folks are thinking about this. And the types of deals we're seeing right now, um, you know, on the provider side, there's platforms that are out there. These are the people that mint the coins. Um, they established a network. They established this all of this ledgering uh, uh, stuff that we've been talking about, it's done through technology and on public networks. It's done through a series of computers out on the internet, just like the internet, it's a subset of the internet. And they're out there you know, developing these networks to increase um, speeds and so that more functional tokens or, or, or tokens that do things rather than just stand for something like a currency, um, they can you know, have more robust feature sets and functionalities. And what you're seeing is, is those platforms are developing uh, their terms and conditions. You know, we see the agreements from the major platforms and monthly they're changing. Uh, you know, at first they were pretty loose and then they're starting now to hire a more sophisticated counsel. And so they're, they're patching holes and, and learning from their war stories. So, uh, you know, a, an agreement that you read from a, um, a, you know, like a Coinbase or someone that's a common provider is probably not the same agreement that was there six months ago. They're just changing rapidly. Um, and so what's happening is you're looking at all the, these different, um, these different platforms and you're looking at the type, yeah, there's different platforms. Then there's the marketplaces where do you sell the NFTs, right? Uh, what, what are they? And, and the, to, to put it just in the simplest form, what an NFT, and, and I think it's hard for people to understand, like when you're talking in abstract, what we're talking about, but, you know, people can, there's LeBron James. Uh, file shots out there that are selling videos of LeBron James file shots that are selling for $70,000 a pop. And, and all they are is the official version of the LeBron James file shot. You can watch the file shot on TV. You can see it uh, on, um, you know, you can see it on YouTube as a video of watching the game. But this is the official version that's sanctioned by the NBA that says this is similar to a baseball card, just like you can photocopy a Mickey Mantle rookie card and hang it on your wall, no one's gonna be very impressed. But if you have a real Mickey Mantle rookie card and it's hanging on your wall and it's made by tops and, 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 you know, and, and, and everybody ascribes value to it, that's what NFTs are doing right now. 
And so you see there's these marketplaces that are built springing up to, um, to, to offer these and buy, sell, and trade them and, and drive in value up. And what are we seeing the NFTs come from? Dominating the space are these interests here down in the lower left. Sports memorabilia, like I said, the, the foul shots, uh, that's NBA top shots. You know, they were one of the first mainstream folks that said, wow, I can't believe the money that's flowing through these things. Artwork, you know, as if you used to, um, there's a whole genre of artwork out there called illustration art. Uh, Frank Frazetta is kind of seen as like the key of that, if you're familiar with this type of art. And his paintings sell for millions of dollars because, um, you know, people don't paint for illustrations that you see in magazines anymore. They can't make money by pulling out their, their canvas and, and pulling out their paint set. Instead, they do everything digitally. And it, and it used to be that the way that these artists would subsidize their income is they would sell the originals to collectors for large sums of money. So they would retain the rights to sell the originals. They would sell the commercialization rights to, you know, to a um, Dungeons and Dragons cover artist or a novelist uh, to do it. And they would, you know, make their money on, on selling the originals. Well, the speed at which they're doing these, these the, the speed demands on how they're being asked to produce this work aren't catching up to, to didn't allow them to, to still, you know, hand paint. And so they're making digital assets. And just in a matter of two years, you know, they're back in the originals game and selling ori digital, original, digital versions of their, of their art to subsidize their income. So it's, it's spawned more industry, like in that stuff, gaming, celebrities, music, collectibles. These are all things that you're seeing are the subject matter of the, um, of the NFTs. So Don, if we I have a question. so if we think about if we think about how it's just exploding in all these different areas and you have more sophisticated entities that are really punching up their agreements every few months and are really kind of developing these really um, kind of really evolved disclaimers and assumption of risks. Can you talk about um, how just the the commercial contracting elements have changed in, in those areas? Yeah, I, certainly. We can hop right to the, some of the terms of service, the disclaimers, like the slide you have here. So what you're seeing is, is, is you know, these are the issues when someone calls and asks, like, we're doing a, a, an NFT deal. What are you, should you be thinking about as the lawyer? The first thing you want to know is, like, what is the service? And what is the service is not? Is this, are we talking about someone that's minting the transaction? Are they making the NFTs for you? Are they the ones that are offering the marketplace for you to sell the NFTs? Are they doing some kind of combo? There's also another thing that's in the next point called digital wallets. Uh, you know, if you lose an NFT or cryptocurrency for that matter, you lose the, the, the codes to, the, to, to unlock the strings. Uh, like the first speaker was saying, you just lose it. Uh, there's a guy out there looking for a billion dollars of Bitcoin in a garbage dump, and he wants rights to search it. And he's he's been searching for a long time, and he's not having any luck because he just threw away his hard drive, and there's nothing you can do about it. So they make these digital wallets to secure your value. When you're paying $70,000 for a LeBron foul shot, don't keep it on your iPhone, man. You leave that thing in a cab, that stings. And so what you do is you instead you put it in these digital wallets where you can do it. And all of these are governed by contracts. There's no standard commoditization. You have to read the agreement. You have to think through the issues. And you have to realize that, that they're changing you know, monthly and they're getting more sophisticated. We'll walk through a couple of them in the next five minutes. But you look at like sort of the ownership and license rights too. What are you getting when you buy an NFT? If you buy a LeBron file shot, you're not allowed to use LeBron to, to uh, 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 promote your goods. You're not buying his name and likeness. You're just looking at the equivalent of a poster on the wall, um, according to the, you know, the top shots. Other NFT 
um, uh, providers will allow you commercialized rates. And that's how they're learning to compete in this space and how there's more than one platform and one, more than one mint to meet the needs of this like dramatically growing market. And so if a client calls you and says, can I do ABC with an, you know, can I do this with an NFT I just bought or I just, you know, bought a, a, a Ralph Lauren shirt and scanned the, you know, scan, scan the, um, a, a thing so you can get a digital version of that shirt. Um, can, can I use it? What ways can I use it? You have to read the agreements and understand what they say in the current environment. So that you know gets to that. And then certainly the other thing is is a lot of these are decentralized networks. To the other speakers' points as well. So who controls? What if the blockchain should go down? What if it gets hacked? Or what if it gets stopped and you lose the value of the asset because you can't you either temporarily or permanently trade it? And all of these uh, blockchain um, you know providers are all disclaiming that risk. So allowing your clients to appreciate the risk, understand the environment that's out there and really uh, go in eyes wide open. There's some things you can negotiate, exclusivity, for instance, if you're, gonna, if, you're, if you're an artist and you wanna mint on multiple chains, you can negotiate whether or not you're gonna use one minting facility or, or, or one minting provider or other ones. There's some things you can't, you're probably not gonna get a, a minting agent to stand behind a blockchain generally. They just don't control it enough to be able to do that. And so going through, you know, those things. And then obviously liability and dispute resolutions are similar to any um, commercial contract. So I think maybe let's go through a few things just to give some specificity at what you're looking for. If a client calls you and says, hey, let's like from a real practical perspective, what are these deals looking like that are involved in this stuff? Because there's not government oversight right now as we just heard for an hour. And the answer is, as you look at these disclaimers, these are folks that control the blockchain or have built the structure. They might not control it, but they built the technology that's been replicated, much like the internet's not controlled by one particular individual. A lot of these blockchain networks are not controlled by one particular individual. And so if you look right here, they're saying, you can buy our, our uh, highlighted yellow. This is from actual, from actual terms and conditions that we saw. Again, some of them, they might have changed since we, we've talked because we pulled them a few weeks ago. But this, this is you know this is what is in there. We cannot affect or otherwise control the transfer of any rights or NFTs or underlying associated content or items. You know, in what other industry would you buy something that operates on a network, proprietary or not, and then say what you bought? We're not taking any responsibility that you're going to own it, have it, or or be able to transfer it in the future. You know, they're they're given broad disclaimers. You know, they're not responsible for losses due to the blockchain failing. You know, if the, if the ledger makes a mistake and, and you lose your, your, your coveted foul, sh foul shot, you know, you're kind of out of luck legally for these. And then, you know, in, in, in the last, we, we have no control, make no guarantees with respect to the functioning of the very thing that they're selling you. So these are the terms and conditions that are out there. And, and I'll be honest with you, these ones are not really negotiable. This is just the risk that you have to advise clients, you know, to a T all the service providers are saying we're building this infrastructure but as of now you know there's there's none that i know of that stand behind it and say we guarantee for x period of time it will be up and running which again you know leads to the next point which is there's regulatory uncertainty here and and a lot of reason why the blockchain providers are hesitant to you know make long term commitments is because of the re regulatory uncertainty. They don't know if they're going to get shut down or if they're, um, you know, the way that they're handling NFTs is a little too close uh, to the Howey test to, uh, to to back them into a problem. 
Um, you know, the SEC has said as much that, that they're going to look at each of these individually and see if it does. And so, um, you know, one thing is clear is that NFTs are not legal tender. They're not backed by any government. Um, you know, these are for all intents and purposes, what you're seeing out there now in the marketplace are the equivalent of the digital art market. So it's this, it's the same of going to a gallery and buying a painting. Um, uh, with the added benefit, though, you can be relatively certain that it's authentic because you'll know right away if it's not, you know, and, and the way that it's generated, the sole purpose is to make it authentic. Uh, security, you know, a lot of these things have, you know, just like any other, these wallets that store your password, they're generally secure from a, from a, um, from a technology standpoint. I mean, that's their sole purpose. But from a user standpoint, I mean, you, you know, you can, if you make your password one, two, three, four, there's only so much that they can do. And so, so, you know, you, you have to look at it. You have to be, they all push that, 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 that obligation onto you to maintain the security of your account. Um, you know, put a post-it on your, on your, on your screen and you run the risk that someone walks by and takes your LeBron foul shot. And that, that would be unfortunate because, you know, like I said, and so the security stuff is, is in there. You look at it, but Again, they're disclaiming liability for these things. And so advising our clients that, look, this isn't, you know, this is a valuable technology. It is a technology that guarantees authenticity, but it doesn't protect you from um, your own negligence or from the willful malfeasance of others. It's, it's not a foolproof. In fact, as this grows, it's going to be more... Uh, fulfilled rather than foolproof, you know, as people learn probably some tough lessons. You can go to the next one and look at a few of the other issues. I think we actually have to, uh, we have to start to wrap up. Uh, okay. But um, thank you for that. And, and I think that's super helpful because, you know, it kind of shows that, you know, there's so many big needs right now with respect to the blockchain. And obviously we can't cover them all. In, in, in just one discussion, but, you know, what we've seen just in the privacy space, which in the digital identity space, and, you know, in the commercial contracting space is that there's so many different uh, components to this that everyone's trying to wrap their head around. So, you know, for these last 10 minutes, uh, we just like to give each speaker an opportunity to kind of uh, speak about, you know, what they view as maybe the biggest regulatory need is in the, in, in the blockchain space uh, going forward. And I know that's, um, you know, big ask, but Professor Sullivan, I'll, I'll kick it off to you. Okay, that, that's a tough question. I guess um, I would say, I mean, this is kind of in the ideal world, but I would say being able to bridge the gap between law and technology. I mean, this is a, a problem for the GDPR. I think that we notice particularly that the legislature, legislature that just doesn't understand how the technology works often. Uh, so it, particularly in AI, there's a lot of problems in actually applying the, the legislation to that technology. So I would say this sort of multidisciplinary approach uh, in every aspect. I mean, and the same thing with uh, in, in building software, the user aspect of it and, and making it user friendly. I would say that would be the, the main area I would see. I guess uh, I guess I'll go next. Um, and I, and, I, and in, a, in a lot of ways, I I, uh, I agree with with Sullivan's framing. Since I was talking specifically about the the odd fit between blockchain technologies uses um, and 
these comprehensive regulatory regimes, I think the way I would put it is that um, there does need to be, well, put it this way, it's gonna be, it's gonna be quite some time before the GDPR is amended. Uh, and it was not written with blockchain in mind. And there have been attempts by, um, by supervisory authorities, like individual countries, to, and, and by uh, the European Union itself through um, supranational bodies to provide some guidance to make it fit. But it is an awkward fit. And, um, and what's, what's odd about the Brussels effect, this, this effect that of, of the GDPR sort of um, uh, finding its way in other jurisdictions in, in various permutations uh, is, is that they don't seem to have learned that lesson. Right. So, you know, as you as you look at the CCPA and Virginia's law and, and Massachusetts new proposed law, it's not like they're thinking about blockchain either. And this will be a more this is this is a technology <laughs> friend of mine once said it's a it's a solution in search of a problem. I mean, clearly we're looking for we're, we're finding ways to use blockchain in, in 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 ways that were not thought of in 2008. Right. Um, but but we're still not thinking about legislate are not, whether it's in Europe or otherwise, are really not thinking about how to make comprehensive privacy regimes, which are necessary in my view, um, flexible enough to, um, to be able to live side by side with blockchain technology. Um, and so I do think that at the very least what should happen if I were king of the world uh, is that, uh, especially on, on the state level in the US, let's say, or in, or in other countries, put together the regulatory regime, but then give some regulatory flexibility to implementing bodies or to enforcing bodies uh, to be able to provide guidance around this. And you see this, you know, with the, the, the regulatory regime that's being built out in California, there's an opportunity to do that. It's much more flexible uh, to do it that way. Um, you know, the FTC might have an opportunity to do that in the US. Um, so if you have that kind of flexible regulatory regime that can piggyback off of a comprehensive statutory structure, um, that might be a way to be able to uh, let the technology play itself out uh, in an innovative way, um, but in, in a way that can live with these privacy regimes. Great, thank you. Don? Yeah, I would say if I could if I could uh, have my wish list, the number one thing is I'd like to see a safe harbor, some kind of safe harbor for transactions that we know are going to be clear. Look, if you're trying to fractionalize or tokenize foreign securities and bring them in without SEC oversight, have Adam SEC. But if you're an artist trying to sell, you know, your artwork to uh, uh, to to be able to make make money as a starving artist, those should be cleared. We should be able to do things like in the gaming space. Uh, you know, using F uh, NFTs to get, you know, to, to, to transfer digital assets, to make them cross-platform so that your, you know, your, your character in, in some meta universe can, can have cool shades, Oakley shades that they bought whenever they had the, uh, the, 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 you know, what's the harm in that stuff? And I, I'd like to see a series of safe harbors so that at least folks can start investing. They can start investing technology, functionality. So when the rest of the more, gray area stuff irons out there'll be a basis of platforms and a series of technologies here that are safe secure they've been validated they've been vetted and then you can roll out you know wherever the lines are drawn down the road because they will be drawn but i'd like to see a comprehensive set of 
of at least somewhere to start with a safe harbor regime where if you're doing these types of transactions, you're not going to run afoul and the SEC is not going to, um, you know, kick down your door so that real people can invest real money in it. Jesse, I think you're you, me, Jesse. Oh, oh sorry, guys. Uh, awesome. I just want to thank you guys. Uh, this has been, you know, uh, a tremendous panel. Um, Felicity, um, I don't want to speak for you, but this has um, been awesome. And um, thank, thank you all. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Um, that was really wonderful. Thanks for honoring, folks. We'll see you. Thank you.